This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. What a miraculous day in medical education it is. Huh? Yay! Not only, <laughs> not only am I Dave Etler, but I'm also here with MD-PhD student, Aline Sanduk. Hi. MD-PhD student, Dylan Todd is here. Hi there. Third year MD student, Brady Campbell is here. Hi guys. Chris Rowling, our financial aid counselor is here. And I will be hornswoggled if former SCP co-host, 2017 CCOM graduate, and second year resident in physical medicine and rehabilitation, Dr. Cole Cheney wow. is here Yay. too, joining us. For- Dave, I'm so glad to be back. Yeah, you you you, you missed us? <laughs> I do, I, you guys have gotten big time though. I see like on Student Doctor Network, you're always like the third link now. Like well, this thing has got, it's exploded. Well, you know, we are, uh, we are a pretty big deal. Um, thank you for recognizing our importance um i'm proud on today's show cole's going to catch us up on some of his thoughts on public service loan forgiveness programs we'll talk about really young people in medical school we'll talk about whether doctoring with confidence is overrated and the pluses and minuses of routine newborn genetics sequencing i know right uh dr cheney How's it going? Yes, sir. Can I call you Cole? Of course. It's doctor to you, Dave. Dr. Cole. <laughs> Dr. Cole. Uh, how's, how's it been going? Oh, guys, I'm so happy. So I'm out at the University of Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing a residency in PM&R. I did my intern year in internal medicine. Um, last year was sort of, it kicks your butt, as everyone knows. It's also really fun. Made some really good friends. Um, I ski a lot. I hike a lot. I mountain bike a lot. I work with really cool people. Um, I'm really happy. So that's why I hope anyone in med school sort of is hitting the wall knows that um, it is it gets really, really fun. And even the bad days are way better, in my opinion. So and you get paid. So that's really it's the positive in a way. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We've got two MSDP yeah. students here who don't give a rat's ass about that sort of thing. But uh, I don't care about getting paid. They just do it for the fun of science. <laughs> Right? MDPhDs, they're a different breed. <laughs> Very smart people. I feel like that's... <laughs> we paid for the first years of med school, so... Well, did you... Right. Well, I did anyway. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm in the same boat. Well, look, before we get into it, I want to recommend that our listeners join our email list. It's something you can do over at theshortcode.com. Pretty much the only thing we use it for right now is to send out notifications each week that a new show has appeared, but in the future, we're going to be using it for something special. And I'd suggest... To you, the people who are on it are going to get something out of it that others won't get. What's that, Dave? I'm not going to tell you. Secrets are no secret. fun. It's a secret. Secrets are not nice. So join today. Again, that's at theshortcoat.com. Look for the sign up on the left side of the page. I can't tell you because it's not it's not ready yet. Okay. It's okay. not ready. It's getting close, but it's not ready yet. As I said. We're here today with Chris Rowling and Cole Cheney. And Cole, you got in touch with us the other day because you 
wanted to talk about the public service. What are you doing there, son? Making a lot of sorry. I'm just. <laughs> are you are you talking to me? Yeah. Are you organizing your notes? Yes, I'm just shuffling papers. <laughs> For no particular reason, just wanted to That's, sound important. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to talk uh, about the public service loan forgiveness program, and I wanted to start. Um, but I wanted to start with you, Chris. What is the public service loan forgiveness program? Okay, so in 2007, Congress rolled out a program called Public Service Loan Forgiveness, where they said if you make 120 qualifying on-time payments while working at a 501c3 or tax-exempt hospital, you know, institution doesn't have to be a hospital, um, and you had qualifying loans and you were under a qualifying loan payment, that you could potentially get the rest of the money forgiven after the 120 payments tax-free. Well, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> that sounds all right. Um, so that's the broad strokes, but Cole, why did you want to talk about this? Yeah. So, um, I want to talk about this because some news articles came across to me. So I think before I jump into that, touching on what Chris said, I think a really good example I dug up from white coat investor, say a resident comes out of med school with $400,000 in debt. I think the average med student's around 200000 but this is sort of an illustrated example of someone maybe at a private school with undergraduate loans. So big time debt, big example. So the example is $400,000 in debt. Resident makes about $45,000 a year. He pays about $87 a month. This is a calculated thing based on your gross income minus the poverty line. So that's a minimum payment for him. Exactly. So he pays at eighty-seven. In other words, he's not even making his interest payments, and that 400000 is increasing the interest loan on it, in addition to the base of 400 principal. He does a fellowship after for three years. He makes 55000 a year. At that time, it bumps up to 170 a month. He's still not even touching his interest expense, and he is accruing interest. And then he graduates with a job out of 5013C. He works there for about four years. So he did three years residency, three years fellowship, two years, and then four years at this public hospital, or a 5013C. At that point, he has 10 years of supposed public student loan forgiveness payments made or qualifying payments, at which point the government would forgive the entire loan balance, which at this point is ballooned to about $700,000, $400,000 of which being about the principal, an additional $300,000 of interest, and then deducting about seventy dollars for what he was paying on minimum payments during that time. So that sounds like a home run, like the best deal in the world. Um, I can take a break there. Does anyone have any questions about that? First of all, just the, okay. the, the number the number that you end up with is so monstrous. Yeah, I, I actually had an out-of-body experience when you said 700000 <laughs> yeah, and I, then I just yeah, came back. You kind of broke reality yeah. a little bit with that, that sum. Yeah, okay. that is an insane number. It's a very large amount. And if you calculate, you know, sometimes it's hard to put numbers around it, but I do have a calculator here. So the average interest rate right now is in between 5 and 6%. I think it's going up as well. But if we just did like 5.5% times $700,000, um, and then I divide that by 12, that's a roughly monthly payment of 3208 and that doesn't touch any interest payments. So um, it's fairly in residency, that's nearly impossible. And then even as a trained physician, um, that's a challenging balance to be paying and not even touching the main amount. So here's why I called, though. That was a long prelude. I'm reading these articles. They came in through NPR, Forbes ran an article. Essentially, what they started to find is that as of June 30, 2018, there were about 33,000 applications for public student loan forgiveness. The number is growing to every month. 
of those, about 70% have been denied because they don't meet the program requirements. And then an additional 28% um, were denied because of missing or incomplete information on the employment certification form. So if you add those together, approximately 98% of the people who have applied for public student loan forgiveness have been denied. Um, it's gotten so bad that there's actually been legal battles. A Massachusetts lawyer is saying, you know, you can't offer a public service program but have the same odds as a, as a lottery, essentially, less than 1%. Um, and so the reason that I wanted to talk to people about it is I have many colleagues, I knew many people in med school who just say, oh, I'll pay minimum loans or I'll pay minimum amounts, I'll even get a house, um, I'll live a lifestyle, and at the end of that, I'll have public student loan forgiveness, so there's really no incentive for me to pay it down. And in a perfect world where the program worked, I'd agree with you, but it is such an, a, a bad and poorly run program that I'm afraid that people will defer all these years and years of interest payments, paying down their debt, get to the end of the 10 years, realize they're nowhere near close to being forgiven, and then have this monster amount due. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this program dates back to 2007. Um, and in the beginning, it was in incredibly poorly uh, administered, um, right. both by the government and by loan servicers. Um, but mostly, it sounds to me like on the part of the government, like there was no, there were no published criteria for what um, a qualifying program was you couldn't call anybody to say hey i work here is this a qualifying program they would right. they would not be able they would literally not be able to answer the question because nobody had sent them information on what this meant um right uh it's you know it's uh 10 11 years on now um so i'm a little bit surprised to hear that um more people haven't been approved um, yeah. for this. Well, to be fair, everything is being run wrong under this current administration. So. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I don't <laughs> this precedes it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to lay that completely at, uh, at our uh, current administration. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I have one question, and maybe we don't know the answer. Are most residency programs then part of these 501s like organizations where they're going to be forgiveness, or do we still not really know which programs are applicable to this and not? That's one of the issues that still remains out there. There's no list of qualifying institutions. There hasn't been all along, and there still isn't. So that's where confusion is. People may have along the lines thought, hey, I'm in a qualifying place, and that's not yeah. necessarily the case. I mean, um, just because you, for instance, work at the University of Iowa, which was a public mm -hmm. institution, it's not a 501c3 mm -hmm. necessarily, a uh, 5013c uh, you know, institution. So you know, you have to you have to do your homework. And, and if you're counting on... Uh, public service loan forgiveness programs, uh, you probably better do your research and maybe only apply to programs <laughs> that are a 501-3C, mm -hmm. let you know are 501-3C. And then even then, you may not be able to count on it because nobody has a list. I believe if it's tax exempt, it qualifies too, and a lot of the teaching hospitals would fall under that. Mm -hmm. Not all, but like I said, it's important to know, you know, where are you working, what, you know, what benefits you would have through that. And then you damn well better do the paperwork right, it mm -hmm. sounds like. That sounds like... And that's one of the things that I'm always advising students is if you're even remotely interested in public service loan forgiveness, when you start residency, if you're at a qualifying place, fill out the employment certification form day one, you know, and you know, if later on down the line, you decide you're not doing public service loan forgiveness, that's fine. But you do not want to have to go back and try and get that paperwork filled out because that's, 
that's where a lot of these people are running into problems too is it's you know your former supervisor might not be there tax status might have changed of the hospital so it's one of those things that's it's really important to do it at every year fill out that form have your employer sign it it chris could i i, I want to build on that too sure. i think so I, I would be a hypocrite to say i'm not enrolled within that i'm enrolled with public student loan forgiveness but at the same time i'm thinking of it as a non-guarantee so in other words mm. i would encourage people as soon as you can start paying the stuff down or at least cover interest, start immediately. Don't buy the house, probably don't buy the new car, live a conservative lifestyle. Even, this sounds crazy, but get a residency that um, allows you to leave, have a decent cost of living. Because um, at that point, what you can do is you can still enroll, you can still try to make the qualifying payments, but if it doesn't work out, that's fine because I didn't accrue a bunch of interest and maybe even paid a little bit down in the process. And then if at the end, maybe I made all the qualifying payments, It'll be forgiven, um, but at least then you're not totally dependent on it, saddled with the $700,000 debt and no idea what to do. Yeah, this is a weird tangent, but it amazes me that any outstanding interest six months after graduation gets capitalized into the principal, and now you start paying interest on that. That seems like highway robbery, but yeah. Yeah. That's a Capitalization's interesting. I think a lot of people forgive about that, too. Um you know, so there's there's six reasons loans capitalize, and for people who maybe don't work in this field a lot, that's the thought of if you have a hundred thousand dollar balance, but you have fifty thousand dollars of interest, you're not getting charged interest on that um, until they capitalize. In other words, they add the fifty into the hundred thousand, and that's your new amount. They're calculating the amount you own. Mm-hmm. Oh, so. Things like if your deferment ends, your forbearance ends, if the loan defaults, if you change your repayment plan, which most of us will do in the course of our payback time, um, consolidation, those are all reasons to capitalize. Hmm. So uh, I, I liked your your idea about using it as sort of an insurance policy rather than using it as something that you definitely will be counting on. Um, and it sort of fits into some of the advice that we've given on the show before, which is, um, you know, resist the temptation to upgrade your lifestyle as your income increases, because from a certain perspective, your income is not increasing. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you're getting a paycheck now, but um, you also owe all this money. So live like a student when you're a resident live like a resident when you're an attending um and <laughs> live like an attending when and, you and die. after that <laughs> after you yeah, after you uh after you have um you know made a very serious dent in your loans then you can start thinking about um you know a new car maybe you should just when you have that student loan you should like make a physical like manacle or something that's just like <laughs> always reminding you that you're being like crushed in a financial sense yeah and then as it gets lighter you can take some of that weight out <laughs> that would be like good. an ankle yeah. weight of some right, sort yeah <laughs> oh i mean it's 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 a harsh reality it would help people it would. <laughs> not socially but it would help you psychologically just a number written on your like bathroom mirror yeah each yeah, morning yeah. you wake up brush your teeth oh, that would be like that would be incredible you could like set up a smart mirror in your home that would display your current loan balance and then you'd stop buying toothpaste and <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um 
it, you know, it, it, there there are other ideas that you um, you know, that you you know, when we were emailing about this, that you sent to me, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, the the sort of side fund idea. Oh yeah, I'll t- I'll tell you about this one. I don't actually support this one, but I think we have to throw all the options out. So. I think it's going to be something that will occur to people. Yeah, so I'll I'll go over it and why I don't necessarily support it, but why it could come to mind. So, you know, alternative one, well, so option one is you basically do nothing and then depend on public student loan forgiveness. Option two, you start actually a repayment plan probably the day you graduate medical school uh, that with public student loan forgiveness, qualifying payments, but not depending on that in any way. Option three, I call it a side fund. So essentially what a person could do theoretically is keep a separate savings account. So what they would do is they would take any money that they would normally put towards interest or principal and not actually pay towards to the company itself, the uh, loan servicing company, but actually just put it in a savings account over many, many years. And this is banking on the public student loan forgiveness working. Now, what you could do is just do a simple savings account that maybe pays less than 1%. You could do something like a mutual fund. Um, you could invest, I don't real estate, anything, but essentially what you're doing is saying, you know, I think I can make more money than the interest rate of my loans. I can mm-hmm. make 12% on the market and the loans are really only at five and a half percent. And on top of that, uh, at the end of the period, public student loan forgiveness might just retire in my loans, in which case I'll have this giant, you know, maybe upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting in this account. Um, and it's a nice insurance policy if public loan forgiveness doesn't work out. I'll at least have this sort of insurance policy savings account ready to go to pay for it. So that that's on the surface sort of the good thing. Um, I don't know. Have you guys thought about that plan at all? Sounds risky. <laughs> right. So that's why I it was sounds sort of, risky was, in another way. It sounds risky in two ways, actually. <laughs> Because well, you're so you, you're still counting on public service loans. Well, I'm not counting on it, but it's still part of your plan. And right. then and then second of all, you're counting on actually making money um in investing. And you know, a lot of people don't that doesn't happen for them. <laughs> yeah, part of the problem is that the average interest rate for most mm. like savings accounts is like less than one percent. Yeah, and loans are gonna be six, seven percent. So yeah, that I, I feel like you can throw that that particular part of this option right out the window. It doesn't. Yeah, it would have to be. Like it's going to soften the blow, though. I mean, it, it's not. You know, there might be better options, but I mean, it, that would definitely help. Maybe an index fund or a mutual it would, fund. Like it, it would be better yeah. than just counting on it and then finding out you don't qualify for. It. Um, so you're timing the market in a way, which uh, you know doesn't really often doesn't really work out all that well. You have to be sure yeah. that in ten years the market's going to have. you know done well enough for you that you know that this is possible right yeah and also i think it doesn't factor in the cool fact that if you can kind of do well on your budget get the lifestyle under control you could actually start paying principal down and so the thing you know in the one where you set up this sort of pseudo this bank account that sort of shadows the student loan payment you're still paying max interest on the max principal but um you know i haven't made huge dents in mine but i've started to pay it down. I'm noticing every month the amount of interest that I need to pay is less and less. And that's because I'm paying down principal. So for some people, it's impossible. If you live in San Francisco, I can't imagine what your cost of living is even with the adjustments. But in other places, you could kind of start making a little headway and having fewer and fewer interest payments or at least less large ones. 
So anyway, I think I don't know if we beat the dead horse. I've convinced anyone, but um, look into like white coat investor. Uh, I love Dave Ramsey. I think some people think he's kind of cheesy. I think he's kind of a genius and he's really helpful for a lot of this sort of baby steps of finance debt repayment. Um, and then there's a couple other guys out there that are a little more risky, but um, I don't know. I would just read more about it. I feel like a lot of us, we sort of get caught up in medicine. And we forget that we're deeply in debt to the federal government. And there's there's sort of a second half of this we got to figure out. Yeah. Well, we also live under an economic system that thrives on ignorance. So there's, I mean, there's an ingrained culture in keeping people financially illiterate, right? Because that's, that's what drives our economy. So it makes yep. sense. Alina's a rebel. <laughs> I grew up under a fair system and once you've had a taste of that you'll you'll never understand any other way to live that's why so. I prefer a lack of fairness yeah the, the one question side question and I'm glad we have two MD PhDs there is I do you think that this will really spur all the already competitive programs to even more so because of the zero debt nature and then also people will increase the competitiveness at these 5013c institutions so will this sort of create this bubble of people trying to financially have the least pain getting through the medical education system mm. sorry can you repeat the question i'm not sure i understood yeah will there be increased so even more competition for md phd even more competition for 5013c oh, employment i see uh <clears throat> I mean, yeah, I would say so. Uh, if at some point they fix this program and administer it better so that there's a real hope of like successfully applying for it, for sure, yeah. Um, I don't know, what do you think? I, none of this was on my mind when I was, <laughs> when I was trying to get into medical school. Yeah, right? So, yeah. so it's, I think it's one of those things where by the time it happens to you, it's kind of... <laughs> too late <laughs> which is horrible had Dylan known but if you listen to the be... short coat podcast maybe you <laughs> well, that's so, so savvy that's that why we're here it. yeah I, yeah, I don't know maybe if I was a year ahead and I was applying to residency I would have thought about this too but I'd never thought about this in applying to residencies mm -hmm. I don't know if I mean Cole you are at a residency now did you think about this when you chose your residency program yeah, I, th I thought I was, I wanted a 513C. I think the University of Utah did qualify. It definitely mattered to me. Um, now I'm much, I don't support the program as much as I did. But back then when I thought I was all in on public student loan forgiveness, it was a big deal to me. Okay. I want to know the motivation. Is it like, do they, do they have this program and then they're like, wink, wink, but like it never, like we never have to pay anyone or is it like just like badly run? It you know. sounds to me from what I've read. I mean, there's a great art. I'll, I'll, I'll like, is, it, is it like accidental negligence or like purposeful negligence? I, okay, so I will post the article that I read from WBUR, um, an NPR station in Massachusetts. Um, and that's relevant because Massachusetts is one of the states that is, you know, currently has litigation pending on this, mm. on this, along with five other states, I think, to date, um, including, I think, Pennsylvania, Mississippi, couple, Illinois, a couple of other places. Um, and it's, it sounded to me based on what they, um, based on their research that it was basically a uh, kind of incompetence. I mean, they, mm. you know, and, and I always say this about, you know, government, you know, never ascribe 
to conspiracy what can be explained by incompetence. <laughs> yeah, mm. actually. Um, because, you know, you, you come up with these ideas, right? Like, hey, let's have a public service loan forgiveness program. People will go into public service and they'll get little loans paid back and it'll be great. We need public servants. Um, but then they go, okay, well, that was done. <laughs> We're... <laughs> Having the idea was having enough, shaken right? your yeah. hand, yeah. it's over. Yeah, um, and uh, and then they forget that you know there are actual bureaucratic needs. Um, there are actual people who need to oversee these programs, and there are actual questions that they will have. Yeah, and no one feels bad for the physicians. That's the other half of this thing. Yeah. I I'm so skeptical that they can keep the program going as it is, where they forgive seven hundred thousand dollars on a person who is perhaps poised to make upwards of $400,000. Like, I just can't, I think this program in its original intent was for teachers and yeah, lawyers yeah. who do public service. You know, yeah. these are people who are making 40,000 or even less a year. They have much smaller debt burdens. So I think this program's really warped now. And I would, just, I would be so surprised if it keeps in its current form for physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The uh, 99 people that have gotten the uh public service loan forgiveness i think the total is like five points is it really 99 people it's 96 96 96 people what? and i think the total is like <laughs> oh my god 5.2 million dollars in forgiveness five and a half oh million dollars yeah god. so i mean that's there, like 50 or so thousand dollars there's a possibility they will thousand. revamp it in some shape way shape or form just based on you know that's one of the things did they really think this out when they you know it was a great concept mm -hmm. you know i who's to say what happened along the way but yeah there's a definite concern all around I mean, this could have the positive effect of maybe driving down the cost of medical school or at least drawing attention to the like a sheer, you know, voluminous cost. Yeah, I, I just think that Cole is correct, though. I think I mm -hmm. think no one that, feels bad for doctors. I think it's I, I think it's possible that, you know, in especially in a, in a world with um, with such an income gap and all this kind of stuff between the, the sort of haves and have nots, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people will just be like, eh, meh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Which is unfortunate um, in a way, but I mean, most I think most people accept the reality that they will always be in debt, and the goal is not even to pay it off, but just to keep it manageable. I'm not going to be in debt. I'm going to win the lottery. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I you have better odds. Yeah. That was, the, that was the fourth option we haven't talked about. That's yeah. true. Is you can take all of your money and just buy a lottery ticket. That's right. Every two weeks in the uh, so so in the office of student affairs we have a lottery pool. Every every week I pay two dollars, yeah. sometimes four if the jackpot's really high. Okay, so we're using our brains, and uh, I, I I liken it to the mafia because you can never leave. Because right. what if <laughs> they they win? They win. You know, you've left and they win. Now you might as well throw yourself under a bus. No one, no one wants to be Daryl from the office. People have retired. Yes. People oh. have retired, and they're still playing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm convinced it's because they're too afraid to leave. Um, and this is what I feel like every every week. I'm like, mm, I don't trying know. Trying to I upgrade retirement from being yeah. retired to being wealthy. To being retired. wealthy retired. <laughs> there was this amazing tweet. Uh, someone screenshot a tweet that said like, uh, like one in four people die by uh, texting during driving, and people are like, that won't be me. You know, lottery yeah. one in ten million. There's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. My uh, financial aspirations aside, uh, Cole, thanks for thanks for bringing oh. this to us. 
Guys, thanks for letting me call in. I think I got to get to work. <laughs> but, um, thanks so much. I thought it was so important. I wanted to share with everyone. And I, I debate people or I talk to them about it. So I hope they post to the comments there and then I can maybe check on them. Well, that would be great. Uh, that would be great. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, we would definitely love to hear from our listeners. You can send us a message at theshortcoats at gmail.com. You can leave us a message at 347shortct. You can reach out to us on the socials. We'd be we'd love to hear your perspective on it, whether you're counting on it, whether you're not counting on it, whether you're, you know, you've actually, I mean, if you're one of the 96 who have <laughs> who have, who have won Let's this letter. Let's just name them right now. Name the lucky 100. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Cole. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye, Cole. Bye. Hey, well, yes. Uh, before we move on, I don't know if this is worth like actually putting in the podcast, but coming back to the question of like what bearing this would have on the uh, professional choices of MSTPs, I will say no bearing at all whatsoever. They just have no concept of like what kind of money the government is spending to train them. It's a nice luxury that MS like pure MSTPs have of like not even remotely having to think about that. They just have the freedom to go wherever they want. So you guys, when babies are born in hospitals in this country, they are given blood tests to screen for genetic diseases. The tests aren't whole genome sequencing, but they do look for markers in genetic mutations that cause things like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia, other stuff. But until recently, these partial tests were more cost effective than say like whole genome sequencing, um, which has been expensive and difficult. But in recent years, the cost has gone down and the ease of sequencing has, incre sequencing has increased. And so researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Boston Children's Hospital started looking at whether this was useful and practical for screening newborns for all kinds of genetic diseases. So here's how this worked in this study. 300 families participated. It was split between those whose babies got the usual basic screening and genetic counseling for families who have a history of genetic conditions and those who got the same plus whole genome sequencing. Sequen sequencing. This is not something I can say. <laughs> Sorry. 9.4% of babies whose DNA was sequenced were found to have mutations that are concerning for conditions that typically show up before the age of 18. And none of those babies would have been caught with a family history since mm -hmm. nobody knew that they were carrying these, these genes. Seems like a good catch, right? What do you think? I feel like our healthcare system is very symptom driven and much less prevention driven. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. Like, why would we go out looking for something that we can't even directly act on yet? But I think well, some things you can act on, right? I mean, well, it sounds like these are conditions that wouldn't appear until like, much oh, later. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just no incentive to look for those things because it's yeah. not there yet. Yeah, exactly. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not actually costing the well, not costing, but it's not actually having a negative impact on the person or society in terms of like economic productivity or things like that. Yeah. Uh, mutations don't necessarily lead to disease. That's the other point. Yeah. Right. So you can have that. Um, you can have that uh, genetic mutation, but if your environment doesn't doesn't cause it to come out. Right. I know that's a pretty so you have to, you really, Yeah. You have to look for diseases that have like a very high penetrance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a very small snapshot, too. I mean, so you, you can say there's a nine percent like increase in 
their findings, but what is it going to look like 20 years from now too? Like they could be completely incidental, like little autosomal mutations, or they could be big things. I think mm-hmm. to look at one point in time on something as large as your entire genome is a little bit tough to apply to a bigger picture. I do remember the days when, you know, when, uh, whole genome sequencing was like a new thing and people were like, oh, this is going to revolutionize the world and, and we're going to be able to figure out what diseases you have or you will get in the future and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, the last, I don't know, when was that? That was, that was like five, six years ago. It wasn't that long ago. No, I mean, they could, I mean, Dolly the sheep and all that. Oh, well, that's cloning. Oh, sure. <laughs> sorry. Had a little moment, had a little moment there. Well, whole genome sequencing, I think wasn't available like in the technology wasn't developed until like wasn't it 2007 or 2008 it was not very long ago yeah like very recently and then and you couldn't even it wasn't even commercially available because it cost like like a lot of money and yeah. now that the now it took ages and ages and we didn't have i mean the computer power necessary to do it was so yeah. so limited the other thing that authors were concerned about is the potential to change the doctor patient relationship in the case where there's a genetic risk so now you've got your whole you've got a whole family who is your patient rather than just one person i'm not sure how that really affects things Um, well like in the case of huntington's you know that that can create a lot of like family rifts if like one sibling wants to know if they have it then you know it it sort of um preempts like the other siblings desire desire to to know or not know right and this is coming up in actually like like this, you know, the 23andMe companies, these companies that, you know, offer to screen you or offer to, you know, uh, look at your DNA and figure out, you know, who your brothers and sisters are and, <laughs> and, uh, and what, um, you know, what, uh, what diseases they, that may exist for them. And now we're hearing reports from people who are like, you know, oh, I found out my, my father wasn't faithful or my mother wasn't faithful. Or, and, and you know, that's something I never wanted to know, or that's something they never wanted me to know, or, you know, like all these kinds of like knock on effects that, you know, yeah I don't remember anybody saying, Hey, there's a risk that your mother was sleeping around or your father was, you know, having to get a little well, side you're action. going to know who the mom was. Yeah. Right. I suppose. <laughs> Ideally. I'm sorry. Once again, my ignorance is revealed. Well, the stats but- on that are scary too. It's like eight eight to 10% aren't the actual father or something. It's, it's much higher than you'd oh. expect. So mm. not surprising that we're finding these. In my defense, Aline, <laughs> yes. I remembered this specific case. It was of a, of a brother and a half brother oh. that they oh. didn't know that they weren't uh, full siblings. Like via their father or via, via their mother? Via their, their mother was their birth mother was had an affair and so they were now half brothers instead of full brothers i thought you were talking about like children raised by a mother who didn't actually give birth to them and them not realizing i guess that could also happen i mean that can also that could also yeah um and then there's of course you know okay so it's you know the slippery slope argument you know now that we can test newborns do we test fetuses and um, do we then allow parents to act on those decisions for better or for worse? Mm. Um, you know, how does that, how does that all work? Well, amniocentesis and like, uh, like identifying babies with trisomy 21 has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if it would change things that 
much. Well, yeah, I mean, but but then you have the so like the that's idea, a that's a very serious condition. For, yeah, right, yeah. right. It's a very serious condition. And then when you start talking about, well, you know, they might have um, another serious disease, uh, disease sickle cell, hmm. but which is less, I think, right, less um, life threatening. It's pretty bad, but it's less life threatening. Do you act on that? Yeah. Am I? Am I thinking about this right? Yeah. I think you are. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Sometimes think, that happens. But all of this is kind of a quagmire, you know? Yeah. It's like yeah. the longer you mm -hmm. think about it, you will have more and more questions. Yeah. Well, and eventually you become a like biomedical ethicist. If you oh <laughs> God, if you think about it for too long, sweet baby Jesus, I, we can't allow that. No, sort of thing. Well, that's what I was about to say. The law hasn't, or like the the ethical rules haven't really caught up to the technology yet. But yep. like the thing that you rightly pointed out in kind of a joking way about oh, like you know finding out that <laughs> your father is not your father. I think part of the problem with doing that uh, is that you're going on a fishing expedition and once you have that information do you act on it is there anything you can even do yeah you know oh yeah that's why we don't do like cts or mris on healthy people because yeah. like the right. you will find something and then you have to act on it yeah, so. yeah exactly yeah in related news uh chinese scientist hu jingkui who claimed to have nice. genetically engineered actual babies to eliminate their risk for hiv he has resurfaced uh, if you were if you were wondering, he's living. So he disappeared, and now he's back. He disappeared for several weeks. Now he's back. Uh, he's just he's he seems to be under house arrest in his university apartments, got, guarded by, you know, ten or so uh, uh, toughs. So, Un unidentified men. Yes, we'll okay. see what happens there. I don't believe it. You don't I believe don't what? I don't believe it happened. I don't. Oh. I don't believe he actually crispered these genes out of two babies that are now born and living healthily. Oh. I, until he produces them and until someone takes a video of a lab tech drawing blood, one shot, one unbroken video shot and an unbroken chain of evidence of that blood going to a lab and getting tested, I won't believe it. Uh, Aline wants at least a nine month long video. <laughs> <laughs> or, or an international, not just from China, not just physicians from China, but an international panel of physicians who examine these kids and then write, you know, their findings in consensus. All right. Yeah, I agree with Aline because there, there's a company in Canada that has claimed to like clone babies oh it's like i think it's like uh the like financial wing of one of those like ufo religions oh great <laughs> and, and they they think that like human cloning is like a really important step for like yeah the human trajectory as like a species you know chris so, rowling our financial aid counselor who's uh, <laughs> sitting here with us he's also cloning babies oh, no. the financial wing of the carver it's college so, of medicine so all the risky. time that is where all of our money goes <laughs> yes <laughs> Don't but, tell. <laughs> but yeah, so they've claimed that they've they've done it seven times, and then whenever someone's like, "Okay, well, like, can we like can we like come and like we've all get cloned the proof? a baby, guys? Let's... They're like, <laughs> <laughs> like we're go away, we're busy. Like no, they're like no, 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 no further questions. It's totally happened. Just don't look yeah. into it, Ernie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there's an article in the Albany Times Union that caught my eye this week. It's not big news. It's not a, you know, it's not very important, but it got me thinking. It's about a local kid, Julian DuPont, age 15, graduating last month from Rensselaer Polytechnic. He wants to go to medical school after a gap year. 
So uh, this kid's pretty good. He's been in college since he was 12, first at Bard College, then he transferred to RPI. And the profile says he's been tutoring his old classmates in chemistry and genetics. Um, his gap year, he says, will involve volunteering at a nursing home or hospital. Um, but he, he does acknowledge he's really not old enough to work with patients as a, as a researcher or as a physician yet. He's quoted in the article as saying, I don't have much to talk about with my classmates outside of classwork. I don't have any friends my own age, but I don't need the social element in order to learn. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't want to crap on this young man's uh, plans. I mean, our society definitely has a bit of a fascination with the child prodigy in medicine, especially. And he's clearly got something going on upstairs. But leaving aside thoughts about the realism of his plans to get into med school at 17, is this even a good idea? It is. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, If you look at other countries and what time, uh, like in other countries, people become, go to medical school Mm -hmm. and become doctors. It's not preposterous. Okay. Actually, it's o- yeah. It's only preposterous because we have this like <laughs> very strong conception that people have to do four years of college and become well-rounded and smooth and shiny before they go to medical school. And it, you know, smooth and shiny is, yeah. a, is an adjective I apply. <laughs> right. Right. Dylan I talk. mean, that's that's how I turned out. So yeah. I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying. But it. And another thing is. Uh, you know, like clearly the, this, this guy's intellectual development is faster than other people. And he's really smart. You know, maybe his emotional social development is too. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't know. He sounds pretty self-aware to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I know plenty of, of really smart people who like are still have not socially developed and they're in their twenties. So, you know, yeah, give him a shot, right? I admit I was, I mean, I, I, I was super skeptical. That's, I think I've made that clear. Um, but, but yeah, like it's not uncommon even here. I mean, every year we, uh, according to Amy, we get a few people who are, you know, very, very, very young, 16 years old or whatever, um, applying to med school. Um, and they tell me that, you know, they get in. Um and so and here's the other thing like going to medical school definitely ages you so he'll probably come out like being 20 40. Yeah, 40. <laughs> like it just it just you know the 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 dark crystal that movie where like the wow there's the, a... the skexy they just suck the life out of those sweet delicious <laughs> i forget the name of the other the other race yeah they just kind of yeah so yeah that so he by his first year, he'll be at the appropriate age. Okay. <laughs> well. Yeah, and I think he's more, he'll be more than, he'll be just as qualified as anyone else to treat any patient. Really, his problem will be with, like, respect from patients. Um, yeah, being taken seriously. Yeah, because, I mean, we hear stories of friends who, if you look young, they question you as a medical student, or they question the residents, or mm-hmm. seen them question staff, and, I mean, it's going to happen to everyone. It'll just happen more to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to echo, I I totally agree, Brady. I wanted to echo, too, something that Dylan said um, about how in other countries it's not that unusual. That's true. Um, There's no reason to go to university in most other countries. You just go, like, that's very specific to us. But what I will say is that in other countries compared to the U.S., there's far fewer, how to put this, a smaller influence of social determinants of health in those countries compared to ours, um, just because there are 
fewer safety nets. Uh, you know, there are many more financial and social considerations um, to think about when you're treating a patient. And unless you have a little bit of life experience, you just uh, can't um, sort of appreciate those factors. Yeah, like as if, much, you, maybe. if you have a patient who's coming in with a heart condition because they have a huge mortgage to pay down and they have four kids who are in <laughs> college and you know they're freaking out about that, then if you I'm not saying you need to be in that specific situation to like really understand your patient, but if you haven't lived a little bit of life to know what kind of pressure and what kind of what, how much how much lifestyle matters actually when you're trying to um, design a treatment regimen for a patient that they can actually adhere to, mm -hmm. I think that's relevant. But I I still I don't guess that's think... where I was going with my skepticism is that you know there's. There's something to be said for having a perspective well, yeah, that's nice. a little bit older. I well, know that's what the gap really year is on. for. You <laughs> exactly. get the perspective and you get... <laughs> Bam. A one, perspective achieved. One year yeah, of volunteering right? in a nursing home, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're on money today, but like I'm sure this kid has had scholarship after scholarship to go all these places. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, like with the social determinants of health, how that would kind of play into, yeah. you know, just your understanding of what these average Americans are living like. And we know nothing about his financial situation, no, for don't. instance. So, could, you know, he, yeah. he may well be... His father is a project manager and his mom is a psychologist, I think. We know a little bit about his... Okay. Uh, so they're like up, upper middle class, probably okay. middle class. But um, I think what would be more effective than working in a nursing home is like have him wait tables for a year. Because this kid's probably used to people kissing his At the his hospital butt. cafeteria. Yeah. <laughs> you get both. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Double there you dip. Go. Exactly. There is nothing more humbling than working in the service industry, actually. Yeah. Like no, yeah. waiting tables or serving coffee or retail. Humbling is not the word I would use. Infuriating yes. at times. Character building. Yes. I yeah. think everybody Rating. should be required. <laughs> I, yeah. I took a year between <laughs> medical school and worked in the service industry. It was yeah. What did you do? I worked at a rock climbing gym, actually. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've spent most of my life in service industry type stuff, that or education. Because medicine is a customer service industry, whether we like mm -hmm. to admit it or not. You are selling drugs to patients <laughs> in, a, in a way. In a way. <laughs> selling that they need to take them. Not, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I don't even like how that sounds. <laughs> All right, maybe, can we cut that no, out? No, no, no. We're not gonna, it's too funny. That's cool. <laughs> okay, maybe not selling drugs, but you know, the fact is that like the vast majority of treatment options that we'll offer to patients is, you know, yeah. pharmaceutically based. Yeah, yeah. Right? You actually we, or can we sell them health and exercise and good eating habits? I maybe? wish. Yeah, I wish. Well, you try. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal, right? Well, I was talking to someone recently, and I think maybe it was, no, sorry, it was Pete Rubenstein. We were talking about- um, so our, our biochemistry uh, and- God. God. Yeah. Here at, yes. Yeah. Kind of a, a living legend here. Yeah. Um, we were talking about the, the just the poor um, nutrition education that we get in med school, like the number of hours we get, and it's, it's almost entirely contained in biochem, and uh, it's really just, like, it's very scientific-based. It's very- yeah, like biochemically based as opposed to like if you had a patient come in and you're trying to advise them on how to eat healthier, like you wouldn't really know what to tell them because they don't care about like, you know, the TCA cycle or the Krebs, whatever. They don't care about that. <laughs> you would ne almost certainly have to consult out to a, you know, an RD or a registered dietitian mm -hmm. to like help you with that. Yeah. But I think the the best example of that is with warfarin, you know, we talk about 
like not eating green leafy vegetables. Mm -hmm. That's like the extent of what we know. And then if your patient asks you, well, like what other foods do I kind of need to avoid or should I eat? You're like green leafy vegetables. Just don't eat too many of those. That's all I know. We only know that because it's, you know, one of the medical trivia from Step is that like, oh, you shouldn't eat, you know, you shouldn't have grapefruit with this drug, whatever. Right. Yeah. Why? Well, because it's a SIP inhibitor, but you know. Well, just knowing that motivational interviewing basically does nothing it just really helps you figure out whether or not like you should try to talk to people about things you don't know very much about because <laughs> that'll definitely convince them oh yeah uh well best uh, what are we on here how did we oh, get here? We were talking about <laughs> how the hell? How the hell did this happen? Who are you people? <laughs> uh, the kid. The, the kid. The best the of luck. Uh, best of the luck, young Julian Dupont, age fifteen. Um, I'm sorry that I was skeptical at first. I'm. I'm. You got my support all the way. You actually have my support all the way. I want to say, always a cheerleader for med students. I just want med students to be happy, healthy. And, you know, have a good, have a good situation. He's so. taking the right steps. It, okay. it is worrisome to be so young in such a psychologically taxing environment as med school, but yeah. he seems to be aware and taking the right precautions. So Godspeed. I direct your attention now to an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, an opinion piece by a med student, uh, which discusses the so-called confidence gap and her experiences with it. The the phrase confidence gap refers to the differences in confidence between men and women, and the gap has been demonstrated not just in med school, but in business professionals and academic faculty. And in talking it over with her fellow lady med students, um, they realized together that they'd all been given this advice to sort of lean in, act more confident, um, speak up, fake it till you make it. But the gist of the article um, is basically... Is this actually good advice in an age where collaboration with both colleagues and patients is seen as important? I mean, if you're ultra confident, that sort of weighs against collaboration a little bit, right? Like my way or the, my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. What do y'all think? I think there's, I mean, not to like be boring, but there's a little bit of a middle ground. Like a lot of times when, Boring. There, when there is collaboration, <laughs> if everyone is just kind of passive, nothing happens. So someone has to be confident and someone has to make things happen, even in a collaborative environment. But what um, if you're a med student and you don't know anything, you know, and you're being asked to be confident and, and you know, speak up and lean in and all that crap? What did Dylan say? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> just shout it. <laughs> I got nothing. Everyone will believe you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it it might be a holdover from like a the more traditional culture of medicine of like, you know, you are the boss of the patient. You know, they are the recipient of care as opposed to what it's evolving into now, which is that patients are partners in their own care. You have to get them on board. But that's still, I agree with the Brady, I think that still requires some confidence because after all, you are the doctor. Yeah. You are the care provider and they're looking to you, you know, for your technical expertise. Well, in, in reviewing their, their uh, you know, in, in this conversation, she had with her fellow female medical students you know they sort of look back on the kinds of behaviors that they thought might uh 
be contributing to this perception and you know it's it's kind of some kind of obvious things like you know hesitation tone of voice um saying i think i believe i'm not sure um uh you know she says that she would like to see more coaching on how to deal with uncertainty when talking with patients and colleagues mm -hmm. um and i could see some sort of immediate ways to mm. to sort of have this be less of an obvious factor i mean you know you're going to have to admit that you don't know the answer but i mean and you can be like confident in that way and that's going to make the patient feel more comfortable because if you just say well um i'm not really sure but i can like find out whereas if you say <laughs> that's hey yeah. i'm actually not sure but i'm gonna go check on this right now and i'll get right back to you they're gonna feel much more comfortable in that you kind of deliver that in a confident way i've had and a lot I, of seasoned doctors say I, to me i don't know you know, yeah. I don't know, but I'm going to go, we're, you know, I'm going to figure it out or I'm going to go look it up. I got to do some research. I'm fine with that. Like, yeah. hey, let's keep gathering information so we can get closer yeah. to the answer. There's yeah. confidence without knowing your bounds and just being arrogant and ignorant. And then there's confidence in like a reasonable sense where you still know your limits. And I think that's kind of what they're looking for. I think there's, yeah, there's a couple different strategies and some of them are better than others. But one thing you can do is just ignore the question and say, this is what I know. Tell them what you know. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Answer the question Answer the they question. didn't ask. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but here's something I learned this morning. It, it really works. It is not a good way of communicating, but it works. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, okay. Just be a politician. Yeah, exactly. Actually. I agree, though. I'm not sure that we should offer that as advice for how yeah, to... At some point, you become Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You, know? <laughs> you need to give some oh. real... <laughs> Uh, you mean gaslight hey, the shit out of the patient? Yeah. I think you could say. I think you could say, though. Are we talking about talking to patients or attending colleagues and patients? That's, that's a question. Because yeah. it's it's very different. I feel like talking to a patient versus like yeah. getting like asked questions on rounds. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you? What's the difference? You just like lie through your teeth when you're on rounds. Like, no. just make shit up. Like, yep. just whatever you do, don't stand there and like Brady flounder goes back. because we've all watched other med students do that. Yeah. And like, we've probably done it ourselves at some point, but I just hate seeing it. Brady, so, Brady yeah. goes back to, uh, to, to uh, a clerkship and finds that he there's a new level of skepticism <laughs> yeah <laughs> towards anything he says now there there is uh -huh. a there is a thing when when you're answering questions in a team setting and this is kind of part of the the hidden curriculum that you get exposed to in medical school mm -hmm. but if someone at a higher rank than you does not know the answer you also do not know the answer i 100% agree i was about yeah. to say the same thing you are always wrong if it's you against someone superior to like you follow their lead and like yeah it, it seems a little bit unfair right because you may know perfectly well it does but just there's this like politeness that it's a custom definitely. there's an etiquette yeah yeah and if you don't if you don't know this custom you will get hurt like they could you like, could they, you get around it by saying hmm i don't know either i mean i've read this Oh, no, I feel like that's no. still, still okay. get they know what you're doing. Yeah, they know, yeah. They know exactly <laughs> what no. you're trying to do. You're better off just being like, mom. <laughs> what are, yeah, we're just full of good advice. Yeah. I mean, later, you late, can feel later, good. Give yourself yeah. like a high five. Yeah. Mental or, high five. Yeah. And but, tell no one. 
just your your maybe your mom tell your mom hey mom i knew this thing that our resident didn't know how great am i I, I think if it's it's actually something you you want to talk about like mm-hmm. if it's of interest to you in your training uh talking to someone not in a like i got uh, it yeah in a private way i, I got it i know it. what to do yep mm-hmm. you'd be like hmm i don't know either <sighs> and then in a couple of hours right you turn right around and give this report <laughs> to blow it wide open yeah be like i did some research and i found out our question right maybe yeah. then you'll be like right you'll look good right this is our version yeah. of office politics it's the it's, it exists everywhere right yeah. yeah absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely well that is our show dylan chris aline derek and cole who's no longer here Thank you for joining me on The Short Code this week. And thank you, listeners, for making us a part of your week. If you like what you heard today, why not subscribe? If you're not already, you can benefit from our habit of answering listener questions. So send your questions or whatever you like to theshortcoats at gmail.com or reach out on social media, or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. Don't forget to sign up for our email list at theshortcoat.com. And if we've made you smile or gave you something to think about today, right now, while your podcast app is open, give us some stars and review. It's a cheap and easy way to be f- to be a friend of The Short Coat, and it lets us know that we're doing the right thing. We can get a little ego boost. Uh, the show is made possible by generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, Student Government, and ongoing support from the Writing Media Managers Program. Our executive producers, Jason Lewis, our opening music by Dr. Rock, and our closing music by Kaiposphere. Talk to you in one week.